We're few. Expect big things from God. Amen. Amen. Two or three are gathered in His name. There He is in the midst. Lord, thank You for this day. Thank You for the rain. Thank You for all the parts of this life, even the things that uh, seem hard and hard to understand. We thank You, Lord, that we're being prepared for an eternity with You. We thank You, Lord, that You have a way of taking everything that the enemy meant for evil and turning it for the good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Thank you for your precious word today. Thank you that it will help us, grow us, and to make us shine brighter as beacons of your light in a dark world. In Jesus' name, amen. The grace of God is mentioned hundreds of times in the Bible. The Greek word comes from the word meaning beauty or favor. And the Hebrew word is beauty or pleasure. In the Greek, which is the one we're most familiar with from the New Testament, it's the word charis, from which we get charisma, something beautiful. I want to share with you today, because we want to look at the different facets of God and of His grace, and as we look upon these things, I would ask that you be mindful that the grace of God really has a lot to do with the way that God looks upon you. You heard the term how, or you've read it in the Bible as well, but when someone finds favor in in your eyes, or you found favor in the eyes of someone. That's connected with how God looks upon us. Numbers 6 is a familiar passage of Scripture, a blessing in the Old Testament. Numbers 6, verses 22 through 26. And I'll just read it to you from... The English Standard Version, which is what I'm reading today. Number 6, verses 22 through 26. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. There are six things in there that the Lord blesses. It says that the number one is that the Lord bless you. 
The second thing is that he keep you. The third thing is that he make his face to shine upon you. The fourth thing is that he be gracious or give you grace. And the fifth thing again is he lift, put his countenance upon you. Really it says turn his face towards you again. So the face, he's looking at us twice there. He make his face to shine upon you. He gives grace to us or we find favor with his look. And then he turns his face towards us. And the last thing that comes from that is he gives us peace. The peace of God only comes through the grace of God. People can say they have peace, but there's real no true, lasting, eternal peace without, without God. And no matter how much someone claims to believe in a God without Jesus Christ, there is no access to the real God, our Father in heaven. Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, is another great example of this. And I won't go there, but it, it talks about the time when God looked upon the Israelites in their bondage, and He had mercy on them. He was concerned for them. He looked upon them, you see, and they found favor or grace in his eyes. And because of that, he began to move on their behalf and to deliver them. When God looks upon you with favor, good things happen. Amen. Another picture of grace like this in the old covenant is Noah. You know in, in, in Genesis chapter 6 verse 8 he looked at God looked upon the entire world and he was not pleased that he had even created man. They were sinful in every way. And God was not pleased that he had even created them. And he considered wiping out the entire human race and all the animals with it. We for, unfortunately live in a time where people would hear that statement and they wouldn't care about the people. They'd say, not the animals. <laughs> well, you know, one soul, one human soul is more valuable than the entire universe in God's eyes. Such a such a lack of love and caring for human life is a travesty. But God did look upon one person during that time, Noah, and he found favor in God's eyes and he spared him. And the good thing about Living in the grace of God is that it affects those around you. So it spared, there was eight of them and all in his family. That's who made it onto the boat. 
All the others perished. Let's go to the New Testament and look at 1 Peter, verse 10 of the 5th chapter. Try to limit myself to scriptures instead of books. I said, I'm trying to limit myself to scriptures instead of books of the Bible <laughs> to save time. First Peter chapter five, verse 10. And I'm in second Peter. So first Peter chapter five, which is the it's only five chapters in first Peter. Verse 10 says, and after you have suffered a little while. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God of all grace. So again, this was just to prove the point that without God there is no grace. It only comes from God. There's no other source. But look at the things from that scripture that it's packed with that what grace does for us. First of all, it restores us. I think of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Maketh me to lie down in green pastures, leave me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. You know, I go to him with that passage of Scripture, maybe not daily, but weekly for sure. And I ask him to restore my soul. Because when my mind gets cluttered, or it's that soulish realm that gets off, our spirit is perfect before God. Same as it always will be for all eternity once we've been born again. But our soulless realm gets a little cluttered with the things of this world. And I go back to the manufacturer and I ask him to reboot me. Restore my soul. So he re- the grace of God restores us. It makes us strong. It makes us firm and steadfast. And more, do we need that now as much as ever in our lives? It's not a pass for sin. As some in this culture would try to make it out to be. The grace of God is an empowerment by God to be and to do all that He's created us to be and to do. To be a bright light in a dark world. One thing about grace is it's not something that we can earn. We can't receive the grace of God by working to earn it. It can't be earned. If it's anything that can be earned, then it's no longer grace. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's always through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. So we will do good works. We were created to do good works. But they don't earn anything from God. He's given us the grace to accomplish the works. Paul began to boast about all the things that he had accomplished in his ministry. But then he stopped himself. But not I. It's the grace of God working in me. The unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor and blessing of God. Or like I said last week, God's resources or God's riches, really. Because the Bible refers to the riches of God's grace at Christ's expense. Grace. If it's anything that we could do to earn it or deserve it, whenever we start feeling like, well, I've done pretty good. I think God owes me a little something or... He did that because I did this. It's not grace. It nullifies grace. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. The more we realize that we're nothing, the more we realize that we actually did die with Jesus on that cross, and the life that we now live is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. the better off we'll be. And the more we will walk in the real grace and power and provision of God, which is total. He is not... I prefer riches instead of resources because God is not... God is extravagant. brings us to the point that there's only two ways to find favor or acceptance with God. One is by the law and one is by grace. The law demands works by its very nature. Christ offers grace. But you have to choose one or the other. You can't have it both ways. John 1.17, which is the scripture I think I referred to it last week, which is where the name of this particular part of the body of Christ, Grace and Truth Church, came from. The contract with God is sort of summed up in that scripture. The law was given through Moses, grace, and truth, Came through Jesus Christ. The problem with choosing law over grace, which is where a lot of people are in this world. You see a lot of good folks out there, a lot of philanthropists, a lot of well intended folks who are so far off course. Because it's not within man to direct his own steps. And when we don't look to God 
for His way and His will and His purpose and His plan for our lives, then we're going to foul it up every time. And James, the brother of Jesus, in his book here in the Bible, in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, he explains that we have to observe the whole law if we want to be accepted by the law. In other words, he says if you're guilty at just one point of the law in your entire life, you're guilty of it all. And we know that no one is going to be justified by the law because no one ever was able to live it out perfectly except for one man, that was Jesus Christ. Romans 3.20 says that no one will be justified by the law. Let me just read that. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the law has given us invaluable information. The law is a wonderful thing. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's beautiful. It's perfect. It's holy. And it shows us the true nature and character of God. But it also makes us aware of our sin. And it also has no power to change that rebel, that fallen nature that we all came with because of what Adam and Eve did. And because we came with that nature, it compelled us to do things that were not of God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, is what the Bible says. So it rules out being accepted by God through the law or through our own works or our own merits or being good enough or being better than the Christian that lives next door. No one is going to be accepted by God on their own merits. I always say you better be perfect or have a Savior who is. Thank God that Jesus just happens to be that man and that God. Amen? So we have a great need for the grace of God is the point. I'm trying to lay groundwork because I intend to continue talking about this forever. <laughs> but I want to talk about not only the grace of God, but our the way that He cares for us. Our security in God. And I'm going to be doing that for a little while, right? Uh, this, this month and maybe next month or until the Lord moves me on to something else. But I think it's imperative at this juncture in human history that the church, because this, this entire event... If you want to sum everything up into an event or a period of time or whatever, it hasn't been about any men 
no individuals. The fact is that lots of people are offended with personality. That's one thing. But for Christians to stand behind ideals that are in opposition to God's teaching is altogether another thing. I'm not into polls, but one that I have been privy to recently was of charismatic believers. I'll just call them, they call themselves charismatic Christians. I don't know if they're believers. Probably a large percent are not. An overwhelming percentage of the people sitting in churches today are not. And that's not fun to say. It's just the truth. But when between a third and 45% think that it's okay that because the Bible is ambiguous regarding abortion, they're wrong. When that same amount feels the same way about marriage or says that the Bible doesn't mention homosexuality, they're wrong. That word didn't exist until a century or two ago. But it's in there. (laughs) A lot. When they don't, when they, when 30 or 40 percent of charismatic Christians say that they would be fine with socialism or communism. That's not okay. Jesus taught the parable about the talents. And the one who had won and buried it in the ground so he wouldn't lose it. Jesus took it from him and called him wicked and lazy. He was the socialist. He was the communist. And he gave it to the one who had give, he had given five and who had doubled it and had ten. You tell me how that adds up with socialism and communism. There's lots and lots of other teachings. The Bible's pretty clear on these things. So these charismatic believers that ended up in this poll are either lying or I prefer to think that they're ignorant of the truth. And for that I blame the pulpit. And so will God. Judgment begins at the household of God. And I believe that this entire time frame is a referendum on the church. But I know that we have a a loving group, a prayerful group, and a praying church is a powerful church. And I want to call you all to pray and the, remind you and to ask really as a favor that you would
pray for me. That's the greatest gift you could ever give me. God's offer to the world and and thankfully to all of us is the gift of grace. And we have a real need for this grace. Romans 10 verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And I have here in parentheses written in my Bible as a means to achieve right standing. That's what righteousness is with God, is right standing with God. So as a means to obtain right standing or acceptance with God, the law has been nullified through Christ. So he is the only way to God. There's no other acceptable means of achieving right standing with God except through our Lord and King Jesus Christ. I want to show you a picture just to to draw out maybe more of a revelation and of thankfulness from our own hearts regarding this, the situation and position man was in prior to Jesus' death and burial and resurrection and ascension and enthronement. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 16... Jesus paints a little picture. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. This is talking about Jesus. He was aware that it was time for him to begin doing some things. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. That's the Sea of Galilee. Some translations call it a lake. It's still talking about the Sea of Galilee. In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So Jesus was... He knew, he recognized the times and the things, and he knew who he was, based on Scripture, as we've learned. And he moved and positioned himself for what would be his final ministry. The land of Zebulun is the scripture he was that, that we're referring to from Isaiah in verse 15. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So, this paints a picture of the the state of mankind before Christ. 
people that lived under the law and then those who lived apart from it, just without God and without hope. This scripture says several things. First of all, they were in darkness. Can you imagine a place without any light? Void of all light, just darkness. That's what, that's what it will be without God. Because God is light. There was hopelessness. Can you imagine just living day to day, era to era, generation to generation, in darkness and hopelessness and no expectation whatsoever but death? That's all they had. I, in my writings, I've called it stuck on four. We needed the number five, the number grace for redemption, because creation into which it entered corruption, there was, we were hopeless. There was no way we were going to fix it ourselves. And that's all that they could look forward to. And they really didn't even have a way of knowing that. Galatians 3.2, or 3.21, I think, says that the law can't even change the heart of, uh, of the sinner. So, they could temporarily get by. They could live a relatively good life by trying to be good and to do good. But the law was imperfect in the sense that even though it is beautiful and holy and perfect, it had no power to make the sinner perfect. Only grace gives life. And without it, we're dead. Spiritually. Looking back at the condition again of man before Christ, look in the Old Testament in Psalms chapter 14. It paints a, a, another pretty grim picture of how God looked upon man. Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any, under, any who understand, who seek after God. But look at verse 3. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Can you imagine the heartache that God felt looking at His creation and looking down and really seeking and wanting to find someone who was seeking and wanting to find Him? (coughs) And He found none, not even one. Without the grace of God, we don't even have an understanding of this. That song, Amazing Grace, it sings, it, it talks about amazing grace. It talks about, it was grace who taught my heart to fear, and grace my fear relieved. They didn't even recognize their need for God. Without the grace of God, People often ask for justice. 
see a lot of people seeking justice in this world. It's sort of perverted these days. Very perverted justice where no penalty for the wrongdoers. But they put a lot of hardships on those who are seeking to do good. And you would think you were on candid camera all the time, but it's real. It's, it's really sad. Now, there are certain times when we're right in seeking justice in this life. But I want to tell you something. In your relationship with God, you never want to ask for justice. Ever. Justice with God is exact. It's unyielding. It's painful. The old, you've heard the term eye for an eye. That came from the Old Testament under the law. Whatever you dished out, exact thing was done back to you. So you should never ask for justice with God. You should ask for mercy. In a sense, you don't ever have to really even ask for justice. It's going to come to you anyway. The law of sowing and reaping is at work. So we need to be thankful for the grace of God because as believers in Christ, even though the law of sowing and reaping will never stop as long as this world remains, as believers we can believe for crop failure if we go to God with it and pray and ask Him on some of the negative seed that we've sown. And we can expect an abundant harvest for all the good. All because of Jesus. It sort of reminds me of a story of a woman who went to a photographer and had some, maybe some glamour shots made or whatever. And she went in to look at the negatives and she looked at them for a bit and said, I don't like these. She said, uh, they don't do me justice. And the photographer looked at her for a moment and he said, lady... You don't need justice. You need mercy. (laughs) Maybe I should make that about a man next time I tell it. (laughs) But we live in times that are really crazy. Who would have ever thought that you would hear a congressman in the United States of America stand on the floor of Congress and end a prayer by saying amen and a woman which just showed his ignorance and I would even say that I doubt that this person is a true believer they definitely have no understanding that's right amen just means so be it unto me So it's sad. But I want to remind everyone in closing that we're simply stewards of God's grace. We're sitting here today and we have more to be thankful for and joyful about. In this life we will have hardships. But Jesus said, don't worry about it, I've overcome the world. And death has lost its sting with us. 
there's just a transition, a glorious one, which will take place with all of us at some point. But meanwhile, God has work for us to do. If it weren't so cold outside, I'd roll my sleeves up just as an example. But that's what Christians need to do. Get into our war rooms. And I don't mean physical violence or anything like that. No true believer is perpetrating anything like that. But we are powerful beings. We're created in the image of our Father who calls those things which are not as though they were. Everything that we know and see was created by His spoken word and He created us in His image and we are creative beings as well. We need to be sure. I saw Sister Ann's post yesterday that we're by our words, we're not allowing the enemy to do creating through us because he will use us if we allow him. But only the Lord. A steward. I'll read Luke, if y'all don't mind, just one more thing or two. <laughs> but Luke chapter 12, since I'm talking about the fact that we're stewards, Luke chapter 12, verse 42. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager or steward? Whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk... The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not know, does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved, what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much has, was given... Of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So that's a pretty sober passage of Scripture spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ. But he's talking about this fact that, you know, he comes from a position uh, where you have to put yourself in his shoes. What he's done for us, he has a right to expect some things from us, doesn't he? Paul said, I I beseech you. He's basically begging us in Romans chapter 12, based on the mercies of God, because of all the wonderful things God has done, that we not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our mind through the washing of the water of the word, that, that we become living sacrifices. A steward is someone who's entrusted or put in charge of administering someone else's wealth or affairs. It's not ours, 
It doesn't belong to the steward or the manager. They can't just, they're not just free to do whatever they want with it. They're expected to be responsible and, and carrying out the desires of the one who entrusted them with the duties. Amen. A banker is a steward. He can't just do whatever he wants with the money that people deposit. He can't go and spend it on himself. He'd go to prison. He's, he's supposed to do something with it, though. He's supposed to invest it. He's supposed to take care of it. He's supposed to uh, lo- make wise loans and things like that. A politician is a steward of the people's voices that have put them in charge of that particular office. <laughs> a teacher is a steward of the children, of the minds of those children that have been put in charge She's put, and a preacher is a, a manager, in a sense, of the souls and the things that come forth from the pulpit into the, the hearts and minds of God's children. That's something I take very seriously. A parent is a steward. Everyone is a steward in different ways. All accountable for what's in our care or placed in our possession by God, to God, we're accountable to God as well as to others in this life. Amen. There's a lot of scriptures and I'm not going to read them today, but that, that describe believers like us as stewards or the caretakers of God's grace. And if you want to write them down, I'll just list them to you without... Turning, but First Corinthians chapter four, verse one, Titus chapter one, verse seven, and First Peter chapter four, verse ten. So all of our wealth, our talents, our abilities that, that we possess, as well as the revelation of God's love toward us, that's that's a special gift. All been given to us. They're not our own. And we are not just supposed to do whatever we please with all that we have received of God. Even the revelation knowledge, like I said, of His love for us and and of the grace of God and all of these other things we possess. We're not just supposed to take hold of these and keep them for ourselves. As a matter of fact, when people really get on fire for God... The first thing they do is just get so excited, they just think, oh, wait till everybody hears about this. And that's, that's the way it should be. We want to try to hold on to that. It can, we can get a little discouraged after we go out and find out they really didn't want to know. <laughs> but that's the testing grounds of your own home. And Jesus even had that same problem. He said, no, only in a man's own house and in his own hometown is a prophet without honor <laughs> because familiarity breeds contempt. I've seen it over the years, even in churches. Well, they'll come and they'll just think it's you're the you're the the closest thing they've seen to Billy Graham since he passed away, and then after a little while, they begin to see all your freckles and warts and. Fall away. 
We're not supposed to put our faith in a human being. Amen. I want to challenge all of us, though, just to in closing, that we become faithful stewards of God's grace in all its various forms and facets, attributes, and that we begin to go and show others the love and forgiveness that we've all received through Christ and to point everyone by everything that we do and say to our Lord Jesus Christ. And just thinking of one last scripture in First Peter chapter 3 Verse 20, since I mentioned Noah and how he had found favor in God's eyes, which is a wonderful thing, and so have you, by the way. God has spoken his blessings over you. So when you read Deuteronomy 28, just forget about all of the curses. Don't accept any of those that Jesus took on your behalf. If they try to come upon you and you see it in that book, you just... You reject it in the name of Jesus. And then all the blessings that are listed, you you claim them for your own. And if it's not in your life that way, you just send out your faith to retrieve it for you and you don't let it rest until it returns. Amen. Until it fulfills God's Word in your life. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. I want to back up to the 18th verse. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. But being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, when the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as, as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. I want to tell you that the Bible says that When Christ returns, because we're supposed to be aware of the times, that it will be just as in the days of Noah. People will be eating and drinking and marrying and, and all the other things. They weren't aware that God had judged them and was, was fixing to bring calamity upon them. And Jesus says when he returns, it's going to be the same. And he'll come at a, a time when people aren't expecting him. And it's a lot closer now than it was a while ago. And it's our duty as believers in Christ to share him with as many as we can. I... I don't think that it's the time for Christians to withdraw 
from anything. Um, maybe stop subjecting ourselves to what goes in our eye and ear gates, but anywhere that we can share the gospel or the love of God or the invitation of God or the offer of grace to God, we don't want to just back out and leave that platform solely to the enemy. God dealt with me about this a dozen years ago. And I've tried to be faithful in that ever since. And uh, I need to be even more diligent. But until, until they exclude me from these things without my say, then I'm going to continue to use it as an avenue for, for the Lord. Lord bless all of you and I thank Him that He has extended His grace to all of us. His unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor and blessings are upon all of you and I pray for you continually. I see you all in my prayers. I pray for you by name. I, I speak things over you in the spiritual realm and I know that God hears my prayers. And so... You can just feel that warm blanket of God's love and His face shining upon you as you go. Because you do have people praying for you who love you. And God loves you. Father, thank you for your precious love and your precious word. Thank you for teaching us and growing us and protecting us and guiding us. Lord, we know that life is fleeting. And we thank you, Lord, for using whatever remains of the lives that we have to do your will and your good in the earth. Thank you, Lord, for helping us to recognize your voice. You said that your sheep do know your voice and they follow you. So thank you, Lord, for that. Help us to fine-tune our hearing so that we hear you and are quick to obey and we thank you, Lord, because it's going to be beautiful, the outcome of all the things that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.